suddenly we went from no lines taken to every line taken. So it's uh, Charlie and Sherry and Gretchen and Marie. And the main thing we're here for is to help you. So let's just get started. Good morning, Charlie. Good morning, Bob. Morning, sir. question about a Monterey oak. Yes, sir. It's uh, probably five or six years old, has been doing beautifully. And in the last 10 days, probably at least a fourth or maybe a third of it has turned the leaves are brown, wrinkled up, not dropping off. And if you cut into the branch, there's nothing green inside of it. So something has happened, and I don't know um, whether, well, I guess I got two questions. One, whether or not I need to get that tree out of the area so that it won't affect whatever's going on with that, the other trees. And uh, kind of curious about what might have happened. Well, I, no, needs, no need to remove it. And at this point, okay. if 25% of the tree is brown, you got 75% that's still alive and doing well. Monterey oak is not susceptible to any particular contagious diseases. They don't have a problem with oak wilt. Uh, hypoxylin is rare unless the tree is really stressed, and that's not really a contagious disease. I can almost promise you that it's water-related because even established trees are really starting to show uh, the results of having basically four months with no rainfall. And... um, the things that I would do to help that tree, first of all, always check and be sure the root flare is exposed. Secondly, remember that while a tree is stressed, and it's stressed because a lot of the little very fine structures we call hair roots have just, you know, died from lack of moisture, that tree can still absorb a lot of moisture directly through the bark. So every time you think about it, three times a day, pick up your garden hose and just spray up and down the trunk and limbs of the tree and the living tissue will take up, you know, water. And to try to get those roots reestablishing as quickly as possible, uh, always remember there's no such thing as too much water, but there is too often. So I would give it a very thorough watering, uh, not with a sprinkler system, with a hose or with buckets. Add a little bit of Super Thrive, add a little bit of Garrett juice to it, and... I expect that that tree, first of all, will probably look a little worse before it starts looking better, but I would fully expect it to survive because uh, okay. Okay. Uh, if, it, if it was a case of some sort of horrible root rot, if it were a case of herbicide damage, you would be seeing it on the whole tree at one time. You wouldn't have just... Well, that's what I was thinking, yeah. um, and we it's not herbicide. I mean, I, I was wondering, I mean, not well, probably four or five weeks ago, my wife and I went out and made sure the root flare was exposed. Good. And, uh, you know, uh, put just uh, cedar mulch around. Anyway, mm-hmm. and, and, and most recently, just to kind of try to deal with this, we put cornmeal out, watered it in, you know, and sure. then actually did the, the peroxide water thing on, on the tree just in case there might have been a disease. So, okay, well, I guess we'll just be patient. I think I would be. And keep in mind, the way that a tree looks at any given time is a reflection of the care that it got four to six weeks ago. This tree was, you know, the, the damage that occurred to the root system, you know, happened some time before it actually started showing up on the tree. Okay. And okay. so it's going to take it a while to bounce back. But it does not sound like a disease. It does not sound like any kind of insect damage. I think we've okay. still got plenty of life left in the tree. I would expect it to come back out. And uh, you just get out and do a rain dance. we got to find somebody that knows how to dance so that we can get some moisture in here because... Uh, 
Things are getting serious. I mean, we've, we've well, had... they are getting serious. Yep. I mean, I was I was looking at my water bill last month <laughs> 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 compared, compared to you know April or May. You know, so anyway. Yeah, and that okay. brings up one All other right. thing uh, with okay. trees, especially relatively young trees. Do not ever rely on a sprinkler system of water. A sprinkler system is water grass, but they don't right. get the water deeply enough into the soil to help shrubs right. or trees. So uh, lay that hose out there, turn it on slowly, and really flood it because, uh, you know, may run the water bill up, but it's, um, it's, it's a whole lot better than losing valuable trees and having to replace well, them. Well, that, 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 that's kind of how I justify when I pay my water bill. <laughs> so, like, there's an investment here that I have to keep me alive. So, anyway. Just okay, check well. back within a month or so and let me know how it's doing. Thank you very much. My pleasure, Charlie. Thank you. <laughs> Goodbye. All right. Next up is Sherry. Good morning, Sherry. Yes, uh, Bob. I was wondering, how do you get a blue butterfly bush to grow in the hill country? Um, now, there is a plant called blue butterfly clarodendron, which is sort yeah. of a fleshy-leaved plant or fleshy-stemmed plant. Then there is what they call a butterfly bush, which is a boodleia. comes in a lot of different colors, but has more of a woody uh, trunk to it. Uh, which one are we talking about here? It's a clarodendron. Okay. Um, they, uh, the ideal place for them, they need at least, oh, four to six hours of direct sun. Um, if they're getting morning sun only, they need to get that sun all morning. If it's afternoon sun, maybe a little protection from that two to four, just blistering sun. But about 90% of the time, if it's not blooming, it's a matter that it's not getting quite as much sunlight as it needs. Beyond that, regular watering, regular fertilizing, and it should it should certainly, uh, you know, bloom for you. So far as I know, they are day neutral. I see them in bloom pretty much throughout the summer months. So many things, of course, don't really start blooming till the days start getting shorter. But that particular clarodendron should be virtually ever blooming through the warm weather and um like i say if uh if it's not putting on flowers it's most often a case of not getting as much sunlight as it really needs okay and do you need to cover it uh in the winter time it's going to freeze down if it gets really cold mild winter it will come back out from the base really cold winter it may die completely so Yes, I would. Uh, it will be damaged by frost. It can be severely damaged by a hard freeze. So uh, three choices, either cover it and cover it well. Number two, dig it up and put it in a pot and bring it inside for the winter. Number three, you could take some cuttings off of it, which root pretty easily. And that way you'd have plants to set back out again if you should lose it in a cold winter. So um it's yeah it's going to have to have some wintertime protection interesting plant it's uh you know so many of the clarodendrons are vines this is one of the few that are actually a bush and um should be just beautiful for you all summer long yeah they are real pretty okay well thank you very much well you're certainly welcome sherry thank you for the call <laughs> bye all right uh let's see line number three dropped off so we'll go straight to line number four and that is marie governor marie Good morning, Bob. How are you today? I'm just enjoying a beautiful day. Inside today, this time next week, I'll be sitting outside down at the herb market. But, you know, it's just not a bad day. It's going to be a great afternoon to be out. That's wonderful. Hey, my my question isn't about plants, but it's about something I know you'll know. Um, water troughs for the cattle. Mm-hmm. Um, what is the best way to keep them from getting so 
um, bogged up with all the green algae. Well, other than hydrogen peroxide, I know I can pour that in, but that's you know an ongoing thing. I just thought I'd find out if something else works. It's it, well, first of all, of course, the green algae doesn't harm anything. The cattle don't mind it one bit, and there's no negative to having some some of the algae in there. Um, you can limit its growth with whole ground cornmeal. The cornmeal okay. ties up the phosphorus in the water, which the algae needs to grow. Um, how big is your trough? Approximately how many gallons? Well, one is 100 gallons, or actually a couple of them are 100 gallons. The other are 500 gallons. Okay. Uh, you know, maybe half a cup in the smaller ones, maybe one to two cups every two or three months in the bigger ones. And this will okay. very much limit the growth. May not 100% stop it, but it will certainly limit the growth of the algae. And um, there, there are other, you know, possibilities. Uh, sometimes they put what is supposed to be a harmless dye, usually blue in color, sometimes green. Uh, fluorescein is one. But by putting, by making the water more cloudy, the uh, algae just doesn't grow as well. Um, I've known people to put in some of the algae-eating fish like Placostomus and things like that. Unfortunately, the cows sometimes slurp them up. I'm sure you've watched a cow drink, and <laughs> yes. it's, it's like a giant straw sucking things up. Um, yes. They also make, and I have not tried this in my own cattle water tanks, but they make a little, like a little miniature hay bale that's actually barley straw, and it seems to work very well you know, in controlling the algae growth, and uh, imagine you can find it at the feed stores. Uh, if you're going to do something like that, you pretty much need to weight it and sink it, or it will, you know, wind up as part of the cow's dinner. But uh, right. barley straw, cornmeal, peroxide, those are the principal safe things that you can put in there that will really limit the growth of, uh, you know, of algae in the water. Okay, yeah, I'm not trying to achieve clear, beautiful water, but I'm right. just trying to keep it down just a tad bit <laughs> than I'm doing right now. With hydrogen peroxide, HEB wonders why I buy so yep. many bottles. So, okay, well, thanks so much, Bob. I hope you have a blessed afternoon. Well, and I certainly hope you do as well, Marie. Appreciate the call. Thank, Thank you. you. Uh-huh. Bye-bye. All right, back to gardening. Uh, we're going to talk to Matt and Laurel, and Kareem will get me a name on line number three in just a second, but let me push that button. Good morning, Matt. Good morning, sir. How are you? Uh, just another wonderful day out there. What's going on in your world? Uh, we could use some rain. Uh, <laughs> a lot of it. Yeah. Uh, three quick ones for you, if I may. Certainly. Uh, what would be the best way to reduce the size of a ground covering called wandering jew um wandering jew is a very very succulent plant uh there are a number of different plants that fall into that category the one that um or under that name the most common one has a fairly large purple leaf is that's actually a set crazy is that uh is that the one we're talking about that's it with the little white flowers yeah if you want to reduce the size, I mean, a weed eater, a line trimmer will take it down without any problem. It will, uh, of course, it's going to sprout back out. That's one of the hardiest plants in the world. I've got it a couple of places that I haven't watered it in 10 years, and it's still out there yeah. growing. But uh, if you want to reduce the size of the clump, it's probably going to have to be a grubbing hoe or something like that. But if it's just too big, boy, that 
same line trimmer that I use just to edge around the foundation and things. That works real well. Be sure you're wearing long pants because it's kind of juicy and it's going to kind of fling that sap all over the place. But uh, yeah, I, that's that's how I keep the keep the size of them down. Works real easy and takes you know just the you know few seconds to get a pretty good clump down. Okay, uh, second one. Your recipe for the orange oil and vinegar. Um, do you wet the ground first? And then apply it, or just sprinkle it on. Well, it's you. You don't really. You're not applying it to the ground. It doesn't work against the roots. It works against the top of the plant. So right. no reason. You, you you want the plants to be growing. You don't want to. When things get really dry, they kind of shut down. They go into a semi-dormant state. They stop transpiring a lot of material in and out of the leaves. So that, nor any other weed killer, is not going to work real well on plants that are really drought-stressed. So I do think it's important, like water the day before, to at least get them a little more turgid, to get a little bit more water into the system, and then simply spray the foliage. You're not applying to the ground. You're only applying it to the foliage. So a little bit goes a long way. And uh, like I say, there's really no reason to put your vinegar or orange oil mix on the ground but it's r- always a good idea in, in a droughty times like this to water the day before because it'll make your weed killer work so much better. Okay, and the last one. If you were going to put up a backyard-style hobby greenhouse, how big and where would you go to get it? <laughs> I always tell people, figure the biggest you ever want, build it twice that big, and you're going to outgrow it in a year's time anyway. Probably. So the uh, first question, and I'm actually going to teach a seminar, are you here in San Antonio? I think it's maybe the second week of November. I'm going to do a, a whole seminar, Saturday morning seminar, on building greenhouses and garden rooms and things like that. And we'll oh, go cool. over a, a lot of different things. Um, the questions you ask yourself, first of all, am I going to want to use this year-round, or is this basically going to be a wintertime storage structure? And that's going to help you decide the actual configuration of it, whether you're going to need a cooling system, uh, tell you a lot about how you're going to heat it and ventilate it. So there, there's some questions to ask before you start, in effect, designing a greenhouse. And, of course, a uh, year-round structure is the most fun, but it also involves the most moving parts, so to speak, as far as heating and cooling and other things. Um, right. There are many different styles and kinds Uh, Don't waste your money on these plastic structures or PVC pipe structures. First big wind we have, they're going to be over in the neighbors or, you know, down at the post or whatever. Um, But if you're looking for someone local to provide you with a good greenhouse, uh, there's a company in here in town called Greenhouses Etc. The owner's name is Tommy Muth. He's been doing this for, oh, 30, 40 years probably. Um, and he builds mainly aluminum and uh, you know stainless steel structures, which are very very durable uh, and reasonably priced. Uh, he's busy and uh, sometimes takes him a little while to get around to doing yours because he's well he just got through building uh, several 60 by 100 foot greenhouses for a company that we do business with. So uh, you don't call him on Monday and expect him to be out there on Tuesday. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> but of the local greenhouse builders, he's you know the best of the best. Now, okay. depending on how 
handy you are with tools and things um, with a little instruction, uh, which is what we're going to do, you know, in the Saturday morning seminar. If you're handy with tools, you can build a pretty good, you know, greenhouse yourself. If you want a really, if you want something that's going to be architecturally beautiful, uh, that's going to, you know, make your homeowners association happy and even more importantly, uh, the ladies in your family happy. There's a company yeah. out of Fort Worth that does some real good kits. They're called Texas Greenhouse Company. And uh, they, they're basically glass and wood structures. And, I mean, these things are architecturally beautiful. They are moderate in cost. And uh, you will, they're, they're the kind of thing that you probably would want to get just a general contractor, home builder to put up for you. But uh, Texas Greenhouse Company has, an, and you can go, you can simply Google that and go look at what all they do. They've got a lot of structures if you want somebody else to give you the design, give you a basic kit. But um, these structures are complex enough that unless you're really experienced, you're probably, it's not really a do-it-yourself job. It's something that you get a builder in there who knows what they're doing to put them up for you. So that's a long answer yeah. to a short question, but uh, that's right. greenhouses are a tremendous amount of fun if you have the time. But first thing, you know, you really need to decide is what you're going to grow in there, whether it's going to be a year-round structure and uh, a greenhouse is never big enough. You know, uh, we had used to, when we were growing orchids commercially, we had a 100 by 100 foot greenhouse, and it still wasn't big enough for all the stuff we wanted to do. So anyway, just, uh, you know, see how much room you have. Uh, look at the budget. See how much you can afford to build. Uh, if you're just using it for wintertime storage, you may want to go with something as simple as, uh, you know, just using a 6 mil polyethylene tacked on cover. There are a lot to know about how to do that. But uh, something that you basically replace the plastic every year. If you're looking for a permanent structure, I love these bywall polycarbonate um, panels that you can use. Uh, one of the greenhouses we have at Shades of Green that's a lot of years old, and we're going to replace it sometime soon. We sort of did a hybrid structure. We put the permanent uh, poly on the or the uh, uh, bywall stuff on the roof. And then we close in every year. We close it in, and it takes two or three hours to do because it's fairly sizable. But we close it in with the uh, flexible stuff that we then pull off in the spring, let it be open air all summer, and then we go back in and put the you know the the sides on it um, about this time every fall. So it's it's a it's a complex question, and there's no one right or wrong answer. A lot depends on what you need. How much of it you want to do yourself but if you're looking for just a good backyard greenhouse that somebody can come in and do for you call greenhouses etc call tommy and uh, he usually has some of them already pre-made so to speak that he can assemble pretty quickly um, and now if you're just looking for a little three by three foot structure places like fanix have what they call a pop-up greenhouse but that's that's not a serious greenhouse that's just yeah. temporary protection for a few cold nights okay you're going to give that seminar up there at the Shades of Green? Yeah, yeah, we do them 945 on Saturday mornings. Coffee's on by 9. We start around 945. They last one to two hours, depending on how many questions there are. But uh, come to that. I'll show you some really neat wood that's out there. I'll show you the best of the different covering materials and tell you where you can get them and the kind of uh, screws and grommets and things you use to put it up. Just uh, have a lot more time there, and uh, it's a lot easier to actually show you how it works. But I'd uh, love to have you come join us. Yeah. Okay. Good. I'll wait for the dates when you start advertising. 
It uh, you can call Shades of Green anytime. Oh, okay. I think we've got the date scheduled. Um, I know it's in November, and it's either the first or second Saturday in November. I'll, I'll try to have uh, that information on the show next week for anybody that's interested. I've had, well, we hadn't even really thought about it, but one of our previous seminars had so many people say they would love to have that, so uh, we very definitely got it scheduled, and uh, look forward to doing it. It's always a lot of fun talking about this stuff. Great. Okay, I'll let you go, and uh, thanks for the information. Always a pleasure, Matt. Thank you, sir. Laurel is up next. Good morning, Laurel. Good morning. Good morning. Um, I had talked to you quite some time ago. We're under new construction, and it just got kind of delayed several times. And <laughs> forgot some of your answers and had about 20 more questions, so I'll probably just have to call you several times over the next few weeks. Okay. Otherwise, it would take you too much time. Um, the first thing is you had told me about a, a native uh, grass seed from Douglas King. Right. But I can't remember the name of it. It was a short grass. Well, they they have more than one combination. If you're looking for something that makes a the kind of grass that you might want to plant around your home, um, they do actually a blend of three different native grasses, and it's sold under the name of Habiturf, H-A-B-I-T-U-R-F. It was developed up at the uh, Lady Bird Johnson Wildflower Research Center in Austin. Uh, one of the bigger applications of it that I know of is uh, the, the George Bush Library up in Dallas. Um, and it is, uh, it's, it's for sunny areas only. But if you're looking for a native grass, doesn't really lend itself to being mowed and manicured. But Habiturf is one that will stay low, uh, be very low water using, be very tough and resilient. Okay, so it does not freeze then? It doesn't die. It will turn brown in the winter, as almost every grass will. St. Augustine's about the only grass that has much green, but Habiturf is a permanent uh, landscape grass. Okay. Does it put out runners or only by seed? Because there's three different species in there, um, it uh, you have a little bit of both. You can plant it from seed or... A few of your turf companies around produce it, you know, as sod that you can just buy and lay down and have instant yard. Of course, it's much more expensive that way, uh, but it is also, if you got it from Douglas King, you would be buying the seed. Right, right. That's what we had looked up. And now, I was just. The Douglas King has. I know at first I'd have to, you know, sprinkle it mm-hmm. several times a day just to get it germinated. Oh, right, but, right. Okay. Now, okay, Douglas, and, King, and, Douglas King makes some other blends of native grass mixes that you'd use like for a pasture grass or for a, you know, area where you didn't mind having a little bit taller but you wanted hardy native grasses. They make a hill country native grass blend, uh, but it's not the sort of thing you'd use for lawn grass. The one that they make that would be most adaptable as a, as a lawn turf is the habit turf. Yeah, that was the one. I just forgot to write down the, uh, <laughs> I forgot to write. So when we do that, we need bare dirt, and do we need to rake it in? Or yeah, yes, it I, is one of the ones that needs to be raked in. Okay, okay. All right, and then one of the questions I had, we had talked about some crepe myrtles. I was going to do those in a, uh, plant them in a triangle to make a solid dome top right. out of the three of them, the 20, 30-foot trees. Right. Uh, is it okay to cover that bed with, like, a river rock? Sure. 
just 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 be sure that the root flare is exposed on the crepe myrtles and do not put any of this weed block or plastic or anything else under the rock those things are very very bad for the soil but uh river rock decayed granite lava you know uh in many different sizes all of those things are just fine as they mulch under your crepe myrtles oh okay okay uh then also you know, we, we, we've decided on the crepe myrtles, and we decided on the Mexican sycamores, and we, we've got that in our head about the root flare and, you know, just <laughs> plant them more shallow. But we're out in the middle of 55 acres with a lot of wind, mm-hmm. and if you've got that all exposed, how are we going to keep them from, like, pulling out of the ground? Well, the modern way to do it, you know, people have in the past, they've tried staking. Some people put out the little... Uh-huh you know, stakes and put a little like a guy wire to hold uh, the trees up. The best way, as far as a tree is concerned, and long-term root development is to, on either side of the trunk, I wish we were on TV, I could draw a picture and show you this more easily than describing it over the radio, but if you can imagine, um, take two strong pieces of wood or pieces of iron pipe, maybe three-quarters of an inch diameter or larger, and put those flat on the ground on either side of the trunk, extending beyond the root ball, maybe 18 inches on either side. And then you create some sort of a, you know, something that's going to hold that pipe down tightly on the ground. If it were me, I probably would bend a piece of rebar in a big U, and I'd probably drive it into the ground with a sledgehammer. But what you've got is two uh, some things on either side of the root ball pressing down, holding it tightly against the ground so that the trunk can move, but that root ball doesn't rock back and forth. And like I say, you could do this with wood and wooden stakes. Um, I like, you know, iron pipe just because it's so much stronger, but you can't very well nail that down. Like I say, you have to, uh, you know, come up with some way to secure the ends down against the ground. But that is the best way in a windy area to hold a root ball in place while the roots develop. And how, how long approximately would you have to leave that rigged up like that before you remove it? Um, it would be the same whatever system you used and probably two or three years. Two or three years. Oh, wow. Okay. Okay. And you also had talked about the trashy trunk mm-hmm. on the tree. Right. Does that apply to a crepe myrtle also? Uh, not so much to a crepe myrtle. A shade tree, yes. Crepe myrtle, no. You need to make the decision if you want a tree form crepe myrtle or if you want a big bush and start no, pruning it that tree. way. I'm sorry? I do want the trees. I yeah. don't want any of that. No, you, you, can, you can start making them tree-like the day you plant them. Oh, okay. Okay. And then as far as the Mexican sycamore, how long do you leave them looking trashy? Until the trunks are about six inches in diameter. Okay, and then the trash, do you uh, prune those flush with the main trunk? or What, you what I off? do on trees that I plant, every winter I go through and cut those little branches back to about six or eight inches long. I don't want them to turn into major branches. And I do that oh. every winter while the leaves are off. Then when that trunk gets up to be approximately six inches in diameter, at that point I go ahead and cut it back flush with the trunk. Okay. That sounds good. Well, let's well, see. I guess kept you long enough. Uh, one other thing. We want to do a cactus bed, and I listened to you a week or so ago. Of course, I've got to find the cold hardy 
Right. But one, I don't want to be out there, you know, covering them. <laughs> but what kind of soil should I put? Any soil that drains well. You can take your native soil and add uh, lava sand or, you know, decayed granite, things like that. But just you have to ensure good drainage. Uh, the cacti are not real picky about the type of soil, but they want a soil that dries out, that doesn't hold so much moisture that drives the oxygen out of the soil. Um, you can purchase, you know, what they call cactus and succulent mix or if you're working with native soils, you just work in things that are going to improve the drainage. And uh, cactus bed is always going to be best as a raised bed because <laughs> it's hard to believe thinking about how dry we are right now. But we do occasionally have those times, you know, when it rains every day for a week or two. And that's when your cacti will suffer if they don't have really good drainage. Oh, okay. So you're not just talking about raising the soil level, actually creating a bed with, you know, wood sides? Um, it's up to you. Some people will just berm it up. They will just sort of mound okay. it up. Uh, other people will create a rigid side. I don't especially like wood for a cactus garden. I would use just native stone or something like that. Can be dry stacked. Can be can be made very attractive without uh, you know without a whole lot of effort. It's uh, <laughs> have to be strong enough to move the stone around. But beyond that, is something anybody can do. Right. Oh, and that was also what I was thinking. If we're shallow planting these trees, and I want to, I would rather actually raise them up a little bit. Um, do we mix some kind of soil with the native that's there to raise the tree up? What type of soil would we add? I don't really believe in adding real good soil because then your tree doesn't want to put its roots out into the native right. soil. I just use the soil that I took out of the hole to raise it up. Uh, and like to say, if you use something really good, then the tree's going to create, going to, you know, kind of treat that hole like a big pot, and it's not going to have right. any incentive to grow the roots out in the surrounding soil, which is going to both be what it takes to anchor it and to really support it, make it drought tolerant, and all of that. So, uh, where you're creating a bed for shrubs, cacti, things like that, yeah, fine to put a better soil in there. But your trees, I would pretty much use the straight native material. Hey, Bob, this is Bill. Oh, Bill. Okay. <laughs> Very good. Sorry about that. No problem. Hey, love your sh love your show. Thank Just you. Just a couple of quick questions. We've got a uh, Fatsia japonica. Yeah, Fatsia japonica, right, also known yeah. as Aurelius hyboldi, two names for the same plant. Yeah, it's kind of like a, a chevalera. Uh -huh. but, but I've got I've got some black stuff on the underside of the leaves and, and even on the on the trunk part. Uh, and it, it looks like it's really hurting the plant. It just is is what, what would I spray on that? Well, the black is a mold that is growing on a sugary secretion, not secretion, a sugary excretion, really, from an insect. Uh, when they get stressed, usually drought stressed, uh, those plants are really susceptible to uh, scale and mealybug. And when you get rid of the insects, the scale goes away on its own. The product that I use is something called Spinosad Soap, S-P-I-N-O-S-A-D. Uh, Spinosad Soap uh, will kill the insects fairly effectively. Unfortunately, the dead insects look a lot like the live ones. So probably spray a couple of times about a week apart. And then you can either wash the black off, or if it ever rains again, which it has to someday, uh, it will wash it off. But uh, your plants are are probably stressed, and you never want to go overboard. I see more plants, 
more fat she is killed by, you know, watering too often than I do from not watering enough. But most of them are really drought stressed right now. So be sure that when you water, you're watering very thoroughly. They're not watering until they're, uh, you know, dry to the proper point. But uh, you can buy the spinach head soap and a little ready-to-use hand sprayer. Uh, you can also buy a concentrate and mix it if you like. But, I mean, it's just gotten to be my go-to in the vegetable garden, lots of other places. Totally safe, non-toxic to people and pets. But it is really effective against the things that are affecting that fatsia. Great. Just, uh, thank you. Just just one more quick question, and yeah. I know you'll have the answer to this. I, I treated some big oak trees out in the Schulenberg area with uh, with uh, your your cornmeal tea right and and about a year ago i was wondering how often that needs to be repeated or if it needs to be repeated are you looking to increase the resistance of these trees to oak wilt or are you trying to cure absolutely Uh, if you're looking just in a preventive basis i do it about every six months it's um, and I was having this discussion yesterday with the best arborist I know, and we may be telling you about an additional thing to do with something called salicylic acid in the future that's showing us a lot of promise. Uh, but that that cornmeal, which is growing the trichoderma, really works well. But uh, especially in droughty times when the plants are sometimes a little more susceptible to oak wilt, I would do it on the really important trees every six months, other trees maybe once a year. But, man, the ones up around my house, the ones that I just absolutely would never want to lose, it's worth doing it every six months. Right, and and, the, and, and your recipe is just a cup or two to a five-gallon bucket of water? Let it soak for about 24 to 36 hours and then just pour that around. Initially, we used to be doing this out around the drip line of the tree, which took right. a lot of liquid. Uh, we have learned that the tree now takes up most of that moisture within about 15 feet of the trunk, so makes it a lot easier to treat. So depending on the size of the tree, one, two, three, four, five-gallon buckets, uh, however big the tree is, but just right up there, fairly close proximity to the trunk, you know, like I say, I just, you know, put the buckets out there, let them stand, and then just go push them over with my foot and uh, right. rinse them out, pick them up, and get ready to do it again on the next tree or the next time. Okay, great. Thank you so much. We love the show. Uh, look forward to uh, some of your seminars there in Stanton. <laughs> we have a lot of fun and always look forward to seeing you, Bill. Sure appreciate it. Thanks. It's certainly. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, let's get back to gardening, and Leo's up next. Good morning, Leo. Good morning. Morning, sir. Uh, I want to ask you about something I've heard you talk about on the radio about controlling mice. Okay. And- the only thing I've ever Googled that had absolutely no results. And I believe you call it fast cab. Um, no. Uh, you, and you did say controlling mice, M-I-C-E. Yes. Okay, there is a product out there that is called Fresh Cab, C-A-B. Fresh cab. Yeah, Fresh Cab. And um, it is, uh, it comes in like a little, kind of like a mini pillow. Uh, It's sealed up in, uh, you know, plastic to keep it fresh. I put it out about every two months. I put it in closets. I've got a big walk-in cedar closet uh, at my laundry room in the barn. And it, um, it, it doesn't last forever. But for about six or eight weeks, I have found it to be very effective in keeping mice out Rats, sometimes a different issue. I usually use, you know, just good old snap trap rat traps to get rid of them. But the fresh cab has really proved pretty effective against the mice. 
Well, where can I find some of that? Call around to the different feed stores. Um, a few months ago, about the only place uh, we could get it was ordering it online. But uh, my business partner picked up a bunch of it, and I, I'm not sure. I believe it was at one of the local feed stores, and just call. It might be Strutties or somewhere like that. If you don't find it, uh, you can order it online through Amazon.com or whatever very, very reasonably. Uh, but it's Fresh Cab, C-A-B. Yeah, well, I've, I've Googled Fresh Cab, and I, I didn't get any results, and I was wondering how I could find some of it. Well, try try C-A-B-B. I will, uh, I'll try to bring a package to the studio with me next week so I can, you know, read off of it exactly what it is because I've, you know, uh, again, I got a you, case of it. Um, you carry it at Shades of Green? We don't. We've not been able to find anybody that would, uh, you know, sell it to us for resale. They seem to be kind of intent on selling it themselves. We'll try again on that. But um, right now, uh, we, we've not found a wholesale distributor on it. But uh, try your feed stores. Try Strutties. Talk to Dick Barkley out, at, uh, uh, out there. If anybody can find it around, he will do it. And uh, I'll, I'll spend some time this week seeing if I can get you a better, uh, better way to get hold of it, too. Where are they located? They're out on I-10, uh, right, right there at the Fair Oaks exit. At the Fair, oh, Fair Oaks? Yeah. Yes, Okay, Bob. Well, I really appreciate you. It's always a pleasure, Leo. I appreciate your call this morning. Thank you, sir. Good day, sir. You too. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Anyway, that's uh, that's sort of the things we talked about off the air. Let's get back uh, straight to the phone lines and uh, talk to Chicken Joe. Good morning, Joe. Good morning, Bob. How you doing? I'm loving this cooler weather. How about you? Great. Say, I came down here from Denver to escape the cold and I almost froze to death for two days. <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you, I was talking, we've got one of our big suppliers up in Denver, and they were like 14 degrees or something like that. So you were warmer here than you would have been if you'd stayed in Denver. But uh, we yeah. did have one cold, windy day there. But yesterday, today, going to be absolutely beautiful. Yeah, super. Hey, uh, my... I, when I when I got home, I discovered my passion vines doing the passion vine thing, and it's establishing outpost in the corner of my vegetable garden. Mm-hmm. You think just uh, agricultural vinegar will take care of it? Uh probably not. <laughs> it's uh, passion vine. You know, puts out underground runners. Uh, it's easy to pull up. Um, you know, once you have it in an area. You're always going to have some little sprouts come off of it, but it's not a woody plant like oak sprouts or something like that. And uh, it's something that your line trimmer will take care of that you can just simply pull up. But uh, you can burn it back with the vinegar and molasses. I mean, the vinegar and orange oil, that's certainly going to work. But uh, that's, you know, spending five minutes to do a job that you could do in five seconds simply by pulling it up. Got it, got it. Also, I was excited to hear you talk about the herb market next Saturday. Right. You know what? I'm going to have to re-educate myself as to wintertime herbs here in San Antonio. Real quick, just tell me what I should buy if I can talk my partner into going with me next <laughs> more, next Saturday. Well, um, you know, annual herbs or and biennial herbs, of course, uh, cilantro, also known as coriander if you're further north, but cilantro is... Uh, one of the most popular herbs and so useful in so many different dishes. And that's, uh, uh, along with dill, is another good wintertime annual herb that you can plant. 
Uh, partially, mm-hmm. both the flat leaf Italian and the curled leaf are biennials. They usually live about 18 months going through their, uh, you know, two uh, year and a half growth cycle, so to speak. And then for woody herbs, of course, you can plant oregano, you can plant thyme, you can plant rosemary, uh, lots of different things to plant in the in the mint family, uh, what I call mojito mint, which is uh, ro- uh, spearmint or uh, iced tea mint, which can be peppermint. Uh, there are lots of different herbs. About the only herb you're not going to plant for the winter months is going to be basil. Right, right. Okay. Well, great. Well, we'll look forward to getting over there next Saturday and picking out some things to plant. Meanwhile, we'll try to get by to see you guys at Shades of Green. You know, we always enjoy seeing you, Joe. Always such a pleasure. And uh, glad you're doing well. And um, uh, glad to have you here where it's going to be a little warmer than Denver for the next few months. So uh, have a great weekend and look forward to seeing you next week and next Saturday. Okay. Thanks, Bob. Yes, sir. Thank you. Bye. All right. Next up is Dana. Good morning, Dana. Good morning, Bob. How are you? Hi, it's just a beautiful day. Looking forward to getting back out into it. Good deal. Um, I'm in north central Arkansas. Okay. And um, we solarized our vegetable garden this summer because uh, quite a bit of Bermuda had creeped in from the edges. Right. And um, so now we're ready to um, try to start getting it ready for planting in the spring. Mm-hmm. Um We've got plenty of finished compost that we can put on there. Okay. And uh, so I'm wondering, uh, do we need to put molasses? What else do we need to put in there to kind of get everything alive again? How cold in uh, north central Arkansas, how cold do you guys typically get in the winter months? Oh, we can get uh, we can get down in the teens some. But okay, but not, 20, not yeah. yeah. Well, molasses will very definitely help because it is a microbial stimulant, and uh, you've got microbes that are going to work even that cold. What we call the psychrophilic microbes are really cold weather. I mean, they, they work even in icy conditions. So, yes, molasses would be a good thing to put. Plus, if you're putting a bunch of uh, you know compost on the surface of the soil, that soil is naturally going to be kept substantially warmer. Um there are, of course, things that you can probably look at growing through the winter months. Brussels sprouts, for instance. Uh, some of the prettiest Brussels sprouts I ever saw were in Albuquerque one year when I was out there on a speaking engagement. It was about 15 degrees, and these folks had the prettiest crop of Brussels sprouts you've ever seen. Um, and with just a little protection, uh, you can grow spinach. Uh, will do very well for you. So you don't have to leave the whole thing you know, just uh, waiting for spring. But uh, molasses is one thing I would add. If you have any trouble with your soil holding moisture, a little bit of uh, lava sand, uh, lava rock, uh, as coarse or as fine as you want, would be a good addition. If you have any problems with mineral deficiencies, I might add a little bit of green sand. I think I would hold off on the true fertilizers until about a month before you're ready to do your spring planting. But uh, um, the main thing is just compost, compost, and a little more compost on top of that. But uh, uh, molasses, green sand, lava sand, those are other things that I would think about. A lot of people are using a mineral product called azomite. It's actually an ore, and it contains mm-hmm. uh, probably 50, 60 different micronutrients. And um, again, just as a general soil improvement, uh, azomite comes three ways these days. It comes as a powder, 
It comes as a little more coarse granule, and then it also comes as a molasses-coated granule. So you might look around in your area and see if you can find one of those forms of azomite. I'm pretty sure you can because it's distributed by a company in Texarkana. So um, yeah. it's something that probably would be available to you. That's something you probably want to add once every three to five years. But uh, that will certainly, in your area, that will give you a little bit better garden, a little bit more diverse micronutrient supply to you. Okay. Now, on the um, molasses, do I need to work that in just a little bit, or can I put it on and then put the compost on top of it? I just put, like I just put it on and put the compost on top of it. If you're using liquid, you can mix it up and apply it before or after the compost. Uh, that's pretty easy, but if you're using the dry stuff, I uh, probably the best way would be to put it down and then put your compost on top of it. We were kind of wondering about, um, we're not planning on planting anything vegetable-wise for the winter, mm -hmm. um, but so preparing for spring, we were kind of wondering about planting hairy veg as a cover, cover crop. And that's what I was just going to mention, that there uh, are some, uh, deer are not an issue uh, for you, are they? Uh, no, we fence it in. And okay, very good. Bothered. Yeah, hairy vetch or um, there's an Austrian winter pea that is pretty cold hardy. Any of these legumes are great soil builders because they generate a lot of organic material. Plus, they have those little nodules on the roots full of uh, bacteria that can take nitrogen from the air and convert it into nitrate nitrogen as a fertilizer source. But hairy vetch, really just about any of the vetches or any of the hardy winter peas would be... Uh, would make great cover crops. Okay. Now, we had read about uh, when you plant the hairy vetch um, in the spring, you get ready to plant your tomatoes, just mow it mow it short, yeah. use the tops as mulch, and just plant straight in through the vetch. Does that work well? You know, you can see what Rodale Institute has done on hundreds of acres using that. They actually use it as what they call a smother crop to smother winter weeds as well as to build the soil. About the only thing you need to know about uh, the vetch or any of the other legumes, since you have solarized your soil, would be a very good idea to inoculate your seed before you plant. The inoculant is just, it's a powder. You just moisten your seed lightly and, uh, you know, just kind of sift the uh, inoculant over the top of it. It'll give you a lot better growth, a lot better production. In the future, you don't have to repeat it year after year, but since you have basically uh, sterilize the soil through solarizing, I'd really advise that you do inoculate this first season. And whoever, wherever okay. you get your, your hairy vetch seed, they will have the inoculant for you. Great. Okay. And then uh, on that vetch, will it just eventually die out in the summer? Yeah, when it gets hot. When it gets hot, it will die out. And it's an annual? Uh, most of the vetches for you will be an annual. Uh, some places, real warm winters, it may be perennial, but uh, in your area, it's almost certainly going to be an annual. But the seed's inexpensive, okay. and uh, it's a great, great soil builder. Good. Okay. Sounds like we have a plan. Thanks a lot, Bob. You enjoy. And thanks for the call this morning, Dana. Thank Appreciate you. it. Bye. 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 Let's see what Mark's up to. Good morning, Mark. Good morning, Bob. Morning, sir. Well, <laughs> um, first thing. Well, I know I know you don't grow the Malabar spinach, but um, you know we've had it and it 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 reseeds itself so prolifically. Right. I was really surprised though. It normally takes a light freeze. Uh huh. It it got damaged 
the other day with the 40-degree temperature. Well, what we had this time, and of course you're in Fredericksburg, so you got a little colder than we did, but plants <clears throat> like to have a gradual drop in temperature where they can sort of harden off and get ready for it. We didn't have that. We went from almost 100 degrees to frost temperatures, and uh, you could throw in the wind on top of that. Um, I mean, bougainvilleas, tropical plants still have not perked up from that. The same thing that happened last year when we actually got a freeze. And plants that virtually right. never freeze, uh, Sandanqua viburnum, Asiatic jasmine, a lot of things that are normally totally cold-hardy, the top just froze the heck out of them. So reason your Malabar suffered was uh, it had no time to harden off, and the wind in combination with a lower temperature was real hard on it. Yeah, yeah. Well, next time I'll know. I mean, I, I would have went and harvested a bunch of it before, but, uh, you know, yeah, I didn't suspect that. You know, it's uh, like Will Rogers said, uh, good judgment comes mainly from experience, which comes mainly from bad judgment. Next right. time you'll, you'll remember, hopefully, uh, but uh, then, you know, that'll be the one weekend you get to go take a little trip right. or something like that. Uh, Mother Nature conspires against us periodically, but... Losing a little Malabar spinach is not the end of the world. Right, yeah. Now, uh, nutgrass and the um, the uh, molasses, I, I treated it twice, like five days apart, uh -huh. or, or soaked it good, and it has had no effect. And how long ago did you treat it? Um, about a week was the second treatment. Okay. It generally takes a month or two for it to really show oh. up, and it doesn't just okay. all disappear. It just slowly, you know, turns yellow and rots away. Um, if okay. you have the molasses to treat it a third time, it certainly wouldn't hurt, but it takes uh, usually takes several weeks. What you're doing is just kicking up the microbial activity to where the nutsedge just can't handle it. It loves an anaerobic. It, the worst soil in the world is where the nutgrass thrives, and you're just making it really, really good. Okay. But it, it, even under the best of circumstances, takes several weeks to really see results. I'll do it again then one more time. Okay. <clears throat> okay. Um, one thing we learned on the, the hairy bitch. Yeah. Um, it throws seeds. Yeah. And uh, you don't want to put it near your perennial beds <laughs> okay we, man we were cursing that stuff and we finally got rid of i mean it, it comes up in your roses your salvia it just comes up everywhere yeah and you, you know how hard it is to get weeds out of those things oh absolutely and uh yeah i, I didn't mention it to our other caller because he was doing a big field of it but yeah if you're yeah, using it uh yeah. like overseeding the vegetable garden or something <laughs> You don't want to. You don't want it uh, planted real close to beds that you'll have to weed later. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's why we kind of went back to the winter peas. It, it yeah. stayed contained. It, yeah. Ha, yeah. With the with the winter peas, how cold hardy have you found them to be? What's the lowest temperature they seem to tolerate? Um. Well, we've only used them a few times. So, but it, it was. I want to say maybe mid twenties. Yeah. That was about it. Yeah. Yeah, I just, uh, I don't know anyone in areas uh, that get substantially colder, like Fredericksburg usually does, but if they were successful for you there, they're certainly going to be successful for people in San Antonio and areas south right. of that. Right, right, yeah, yeah. Now, now we get like five degrees colder than in town, or at exactly. least five, yeah. because we're, we're in this valley. Yeah, that's our problem. And that's why this winter we're actually giving up on some things, because we don't want to have to go out there 30 <laughs> times and, and cover these things. It's like... It's just too much work. I, yeah, I'm with you there. It's uh, 
especially when the wind's blowing and it's really cold. It's not a lot of fun to be out there with the row cover. Right, right, yeah. Well, we learned after all these years how to deal with it, but it's work. Yeah. Yeah. Last thing, um, we've we've dealt with this oak wilt everywhere around us for many years. Right. And uh, one interesting thing of, you know, we've probably consulted with a half dozen certified arborists, and there's some really eccentric guys, and they're also – they have strong, very opposite opinions about things. <laughs> I mean, I was really surprised. It's like, this guy thinks this, and this guy thinks exactly the opposite. And now, as many Germans as you have around Fredericksburg, yeah. you should be used to that. <laughs> yeah. So, But, but um, um, like, I learned to do the uh, micro-injection of the, of the Alamo. Mm-hmm. I've done probably 50 trees over the years, and, and that's definitely saved a few trees. But So I'm doing the cornmeal now. Oh, and I'm still broadcasting it, and the reason is, if it's if if it's actually getting in the roots and and stopping the fungus at some point, the the, the uh, oak wilt fungus, I want it to be as far away from that tree as I can, and so I'm I'm and for me, well, the other thing, and, and you'll understand this, it's really hard to get 20 gallons of cornmeal water somewhere out in the woods. Oh yeah, you know where where I mean I can. Well, for one thing, the hogs recently showed up, and I can't just leave a, a bucket of cornmeal water up there. Right, but by the same token, putting out that dry cornmeal, sometimes they'll really root up, really tear up an area trying to get to it. Uh, but if it's, you know, out in an area that you're not, that they're not really going to hurt anything, uh, maybe they're just working it into the soil for you. But it certainly does work that way. My friend Larry Longbine up in uh uh, the uh, Sisterdale area saved some monstrous trees, and the trees he treated are beautiful today. All the trees around him are totally dead that he didn't treat. Ah, so uh, Another uh, data point there, yeah. Okay. Yeah, and yeah. of course, in addition to putting out the cornmeal, he raises a lot of hogs, and he uh, uh, put a lot of uh, pig poop, shall we say, out around as well. And the funny thing is, a couple of my arborist friends, when they saw how well it was working, were saying, Please don't let it be the pig poop. Please don't let it be the pig poop. We can put out cornmeal, but uh, uh, it is a trichoderma in the cornmeal. I talked to a a real good arborist friend yesterday. Um, uh, He was telling me, and I'll be doing a lot more research on this, that uh, some research comes out of England that uh, using salicylic acid, which, of course, is um, derived from willow, among other things, that it is working to make plants more resistant to a wide range of problems, much like the trichoderma does. So maybe just one more bullet in our uh, arsenal of things to attack and prevent. So a lot of research going on, and as he was telling me, there's a lot more research going on in Europe than there is here because they don't let them use so many of the toxic things over there. But um, it's just... It, it's fun to have somebody with a really an ear to the ground. And uh, I was asking him about getting a couple of these articles he was telling me about. And he says, of course you can get them. I wrote them. So, uh, yeah, there, oh. there's some fun new things happening. But uh, right now, cornmeal, the trichoderma that grows on the cornmeal. And you can actually buy trichoderma. Uh, it's just very, very expensive. But whether you put right. it on dry, whether you put it on as a liquid, um, it is pretty effective in, in suppressing a number of fungal problems. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, yeah, and one thing, I, I, the way I, I did some of the liquid stuff last um, spring. Mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm getting ready now. I just bought 300 pounds of cornmeal. I'm going to put out a bunch again. Yeah. But, um, I mean, I'm covering, 
Well, I mean, there's oak wilt in the middle of this. Sure. And it, it may have saved one tree. I mean, we have another another data point there where it looks like it may have saved one tree for us that had the fungus. Anyway, so so I had this like 30 gallon polyethylene tank. I put a bunch of cornmeal in that and and put water in it and let it soak overnight. So I take it up there and then running it in the buckets. The problem is the solids don't come out of the tank when you're doing that. Do you think that's a problem that it doesn't have the solids in the water no. anymore? No, the trichoderma okay. is going to be in the water. I okay. would probably tend to let it soak a little longer. I'd go 24 to 36 hours rather than just overnight. But okay. Uh, okay. Um, And, you know, again, don't be running that through a spray rig because uh, it'll sure no. clog it up unless you have a way to strain it. But where you're just right. pouring it on as a liquid, no, just... Uh, just the liquid alone is going to be loaded with the trichoderma and then the okay. kind of sludge okay. that settles in the bottom. Go ahead and sling that around as best you can because it's got an even higher concentration. Okay. Okay, I'll do that. Um, are you are you spending any effort fighting wild hogs? <laughs> um, I, let's just say that when I'm out and about in my gator, I frequently have a loaded yeah. rifle with me, and okay. if they make okay. the mistake of yeah. walking into uh, a right. safe field of fire, they pay, they pay for it. Yeah, I... Okay. I, hogs are one of the most destructive forces uh, out there as far as maintaining, you know, good wildlife situations as well as good situations for other things. And uh, the problem that so many of us that live in the country face is, uh, you know, so much of the area around us gets built up with houses and subdivisions. And you, of course, have to be extraordinarily careful in discharging a firearm. But I have I have a few right. fields of fire, and I I have a good friend who gets around that. Uh, he actually puts out a trap and is very, very successful in getting the hogs into the trap, and then he just shoots them in the trap. So, uh, but no, I, yeah. I'm i really yeah. looking forward to, I'm hoping that uh, Parks and Wildlife is going to move forward with their experimental programs using the sodium nitrate, uh, which is about as safe a product as you can put out, which appears to be, not toxic to most things other than hogs and raccoons, and I'm hoping that we'll have that approved for broader use because it sure is going to solve a, a lot of problems. They're doing some, I believe they're doing some research at the uh, ABK, Upper and Bessie Kronkowski State Natural Area, and I think they're do some, doing some uh, research other places, but I don't think you'll find a biologist out there that won't tell you that reducing the numbers of hogs is very good yeah. for the land. <coughs> My, my dilemma. I'm I'm debating whether to buy a seven hundred dollar rifle to shoot them when when just shooting one one now and then is gonna isn't gonna have much effect on the overall population. So it's like seven hundred dollars just to feel good shooting one of them. <laughs> well, you know, uh, yeah. it's anyway. uh, that's a decision yeah. Yeah. that you have to make, and uh, unless you're comfortable right. handling firearms, you um, <laughs> probably shouldn't do it. But uh, uh, just even a shotgun with double lock butt shot will do a pretty good number on them. So. Um, they, right. they are a problem. Uh, just, I recommend you use whatever methods you can to keep them, keep their numbers down at least a little bit. Right. And right. taking okay. out, Thanks taking out one pregnant sow is taking out, uh, the potential for 50 babies over the next year. So sometimes taking out one can make a big difference. Yeah. I caught, I, I caught a pair on my game camera two nights ago <clears throat> out here. So it's like, I'm trying to figure out if they're only out at night, how do I do that? Anyway, anyway, I'll let you go, Bob. <laughs> I, always good to talk to you, Mark. You guys have a uh, great weekend, and we'll talk about hummingbirds sometime soon. All right, back to gardening and back to the phone lines, and Anna is up first. Good morning, Anna. Good morning. Good morning. 
<clears throat> Coffee's nice this morning. <laughs> so was my chai, but that was a while back. <laughs> okay, let's start. Uh, you know, I am sitting here just totally devastated. My yard is dry. There's cracks in the yard. Uh, my water bill was humongous last month, so then I didn't. I stopped watering it, you know, when I was supposed to. And I, everything is dead. Now, I have to do something about it. First of all, what can I do to drive my yard? Well, water is the obvious answer to that. The holes are so wide and the cracks are so wide. I think it cost me about another $400 to bring it back to life. Uh, and one next question is molasses. Does it come in powder form? Yes. It, it does come as what they call dry molasses, but uh, it's not something that dissolves. It's uh, just simply molasses has been soaked into some sort of substrate, so it makes it much easier to put it out, but it's not something that you put in a sprayer to dissolve. It's simply called dry molasses. Uh, for me, the best brand to buy it under is something by a company called Nature's Creation, because theirs doesn't clump and get hard. So many of the dry molasses, if they get exposed to much humidity, they just turn into a rock. But uh-huh. the uh, product from Nature's Creation uh, stays loose and spreadable for an extended period of time. You can either buy it in uh, about a two-quart jug or else you can buy it in a 30-pound bag. It just depends on how much of it you need. Okay. Uh, can that be mixed with grass seed? I don't know that I would mix it because the, it might be a different density, but you can either put it out just before you put out your grass seed or just after you put out your grass seed. It's going to benefit the soil a great deal, but um, sometimes it doesn't work to mix the two things together. Okay. Uh, when is a good time to put the grass seed out? Uh, three years ago, but uh, second best time. If you're going to put out the annual seed for the winter months, any time now. Now that we've cooled off, I've just been recommending it literally for just uh, the past four or five days. But I think we're down out of much weather in the 90s now, so I think you can plant any time. Okay, next. Um, I, I have some beautiful neighbors. Uh-huh. I have a piracy fence and I have a cyclone fence. I mean, I'm thoroughly, you know, I'm fenced in. <laughs> well, what does it say? Good fences make good neighbors. No, it doesn't. No, no, no. Don't kid yourself. They will not uh, trim their side of the fence. So consequently, I am, uh, I, I look like a forest. I'm surrounded with these uh, trees that come uh, on the fence, the fence mm-hmm. trees. Okay. How can I kill them? How can I get rid of them? If you're not worried about killing other things in the area. Uh Um, I use a mixture of diesel and molasses, just half and half. The diesel kills the roots on the trees. Uh, It's what I use on mesquite and um, things like that in the field. They just keep coming back and back and back and hackberries. Don't ever use it, you know, right around your flower beds or where you have uh, good things planted. But the diesel actually kills the weed trees. The molasses cleans up the residue in the soil. So how would I do that? Just get the diesel? I, I make- just, yeah, I, you know, I used to mix it. I've gotten to where now sometimes I'll have a watering can full of, of diesel and another watering can full of the molasses, and I'll just do one and follow it up with the other because it's very hard to keep it mixed up. It does not, the two do not mix well together. So I've pretty much gone to uh, putting the diesel on, waiting a little while, and then putting the molasses on afterwards. 
Now, that, would that be the dry molasses? Uh, usually, I think the liquid works better. Liquid. Yeah. Okay. Um, that would be on the on the, I, at the bottom at the root type. That's correct. That's correct. Okay. Not in the not in the leaves. No. Nope. Not spraying up there. Right. Okay. Uh, the compost. I I am no longer a teenager. No longer able to do a lot of things. <laughs> so and they won't even let me drive. <laughs> so. But the thing is that I know I need some some compost. I need this and I need that. Is there a company or um, place that I can order stuff like this for my yard and have it delivered? Well, of course, uh, yes, there are places that you can certainly do that. But the work uh, is in spreading it around. Uh, the best company to just deliver things like that is probably stone and soil depot they have three locations for getting ready to have a fourth location up toward new Braunfels, but uh they will deliver and dump in your driveway you know a very very good quality compost or mulch or whatever you need but then of course it's up to you or whoever you can get to work with you to get it spread around over the yard and uh you know places like that but uh uh, Stone and Soil Depot does a very good job of just about everything they do. There is a company here that actually uses a big blower to blow compost onto the yard. That is ABC Pest and Lawn, but I don't like the compost they use. They use a biosolids compost, which I don't really approve of, but I know a number of people that just use it because they say that's the only way I'm going to get compost on the yard. But if you plan to do it a little bit at a time or if you have, uh, you know, someone that can help you spread some of it, uh, you call Stone and Soil Depot, any of their different locations, and they will send you uh, as much as you want, uh, you know, in a in a dump truck. Um, and you can decide how much you need and uh, just need to get it to dump them somewhere, dump it somewhere that's not going to be in your way. Because if you're like me, it may be, you know, two, three, four weeks before I fully get it spread out. But uh, I'm I'm the same way. I'm not limited as much by physical ability, but I'm sure limited by the number of hours in the day. Well, that, that's it. I mean, you know, you want to do, and of course, uh, I'm sorry to say, I, I love my neighbors and all this and that other, <laughs> but, uh, you know, they, they look at my yard and whenever my grass isn't cut just right, or my blue bonnets are blooming, they complain. Mm-hmm. But, you know, hey, may God bless them. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it's yeah. always a pleasure. You have a wonderful weekend, and I know we'll talk again. All right, guarding back to the phone lines. Good morning, Rita. Good morning, Rob. How are you doing? I'm great. How about you today? Fine, except I have a huge problem. It's three feet by four feet, and it is a stump in my backyard. Okay. I lost, I think it was a cedar elm because it had three trees in one, mm-hmm. and it was huge. Uh, I looked on the Internet, and they were talking about the saltpeter and the holes and burning right. it with the charcoal. What, but some of the people said that it started fires no. as, as it smoldered down in the roots. Um, if you had a lot of dry grass around, I guess, you know, that could be, 
But uh, it just smolder is the word. It's kind of like, you know, charcoal briquettes or something like that. Right. Um, in a high windy situation, a lot of dry grass around, yes, I guess you could start a fire with it. But um, I've known a lot of people who have done it. And, of course, it's something you need to monitor. But it's not like having right. a campfire going. It's like something that's, you know, smoldering its way down into the ground. And it is, you know, it takes a little time, but it is certainly the least expensive way to get right. rid of a big stump. Now, the other option, uh, there are a lot of people out there that have this machine that's called a stump grinder that literally sits down on top of that stump and it just chews it up about four to five inches down into the ground. And that's sort of an instantaneous way of getting rid of it. Uh, uh, there's a great mechanic up. It used to be our and our tractor. Now it's AgPro uh, equipment up there at the corner of I-10 and uh, Fair Oaks, uh, up going out toward where I live. Uh, but they're one of their mechanics, a really great guy named Kelly. I know he does this in his spare time. He he's got a stump grinder and he goes all over this part of the you know area, you know, grinding stumps down for people. And that's the other option. You know, it's drilling the holes putting in the saltpeter, potassium nitrate, stump remover, whatever you want to call it, um, is by far the most economical. Cedar elm is a not a real hard-wooded tree, so you would drill your holes, you put it in. I'd probably give it about six weeks and then, in effect, just put some charcoal briquettes on top and light. Um, if you do it you know, with reasonable caution, I don't believe it poses any threat. Uh, as far as starting a fire, but, you know, there's some people in the world that uh, just seems like uh, in the common sense line, they ran out before they got to the front of the line, shall we say. <laughs> well, it won't start a fire then. They said it would start a fire from the roots. Oh, no. Smoldering no. down under the ground. I've known probably a thousand people that have used it, and I've never heard once that that was a problem. Okay. Um, I probably, problem? you know, I would... Once it has smoldered down, once it has destroyed, you know, the stump, I might just to be safe, I might, you know, put a garden hose out there and flood it down just to be certain. But um, I, it, it's still one of the most widely used, one of the most effective ways to inexpensively get rid of a stump. And a little care and caution, I think you're going to be fine. Okay, my problem is I have to do that because I, my gate isn't wide enough for them to get the machine uh, in. Okay, I've got you. Yeah, so that is a big problem. So I'll have to try this. And then if, the, if it rains in between, I'll just have to start over. Oh, no, no, no. Once, what happens when you drill these holes and you put the potassium nitrate in, it immediately starts converting the you know wood is basically cellulose and the potassium nitrate converts the wood to something called nitrocellulose which is both somewhat flammable it's also very soft um oh. you know if you don't want to burn it after you've given this a few weeks to work uh grubbing hoe you can just chop out big chunks of the stump uh, with it, but water will have no impact on it at all. Once, uh, you know, the potassium nitrate converts this to nitrocellulose, and uh, you won't want to try burning it till it dries out, but you certainly don't have to start over just because it rains. Okay, because this is very, they cut it quite close to the ground. It's mm -hmm. not sticking up hardly, you know, so right. it should be an easier thing to do. Right. 
But on the other hand, you know, there are other options. You could create, you know, just a raised bed around there. You could plant things directly on top of that stump. I mean, if you just want to hide the stump, um, there are other ways to do it. I want to get rid of it. It's so big. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, those are your options. And since you can't get a stump grinder into the backyard, short of bringing in a crane to lift it over the fence, which could get, which is possible, but it'd get a little expensive. But, uh, Your, your stump remover will... very small, you yep. know. So. Right. <laughs> okay, thank you so very much. Always a pleasure, Rita. You have a great weekend. Let me get Harry in here as well. Hold on just a second. Let me punch that button and then punch that button. Good morning, Harry. Well, unfortunately, that uh, uh, apparently hit the mute button on his phone. Harry, call back. We'll get you on right now. I'll talk to Catherine. Good morning, Catherine. Good morning, Bob. Good morning, uh, I was getting ready to uh, trim some Confederate jasmine, and I was just worrying that it might be too late. Will the will it still have spring flowers? Oh yeah, it. Uh, most of the blooms that come out on your Confederate jasmine bloom on new growth, so um, you're oh. not going to be losing your flowering. My only concern, and probably you're okay. What we have to be careful about is that. Um, you know, when we prune things back, it stimulates new growth, and we don't want to stimulate a lot of new growth before it could get cold enough to freeze. Mid-October, that's probably not going to happen, but just be aware that if you cut it back, it's going to really start sprouting out. If we get a super early freeze, it will do some damage to it, but uh, it's not going to impact your flowering for next spring. Oh, that's good. And um, then I wanted to ask you, uh, I cut down... uh, or had them cut down uh, four of the flowering pear, what do you call them? Yeah, the, ornamental uh, pears. Ornamental pear trees. Right. And I had these big stumps, so I told them to just leave them about three feet up off the ground so mm-hmm. I could put pots on them yeah. for pot plants. And um, and they have started this past year with all that rain uh, yeah. growing a gold fungus. Mm-hmm. all over them and all over the dirt and we chop it off and it it just comes back and it's so ugly well it's not harmful um it's just uh the fungus that decomposes the wood if you get a little bit of uh sulfur at a nursery or hardware store just sprinkle that sulfur around that will stop the fungus that will keep it uh you may have to reapply periodically but sulfur is a good natural fungicide and uh but when, when wood starts to decompose, the fungi are the organisms that do the decomposing, and that's why you've got that developing. It's just you've got dead stumps there, and it wants to grow on it. But uh, uh, it's a lot less work to sprinkle some sulfur around than to get in there and try to chop it out with a grub and hoe. Oh, that's good. Well, thank you very much. You are certainly welcome. I appreciate the call. And Harry got right back through. Good morning, Harry. Hey, thank you. Yes, sir. Um, can you tell me anything about a lila avocado? Ma bought two of them a couple months ago, and they're in separate pots side by side. And the mm-hmm. one, it says it's a Saxon Becknell. And yeah, Saxon Becknell is the grower that grows them. Lila is the variety. And uh, lila is one of the cold-hardy, what they call Mexican avocados, um, you just you have to realize that uh, 
it takes a while for them to develop that woody bark, which is what makes them cold hardy. So the first winter, you're probably going to have to give them for some protection if we get any real cold weather. But Saxton Bechtel is one of the two big growers in the in Texas of the cold hardy avocados, and they're a good company. Okay, well, the one, they're side-by-side in pots, uh-huh. and the one uh, dropped its leaves, and it started getting black from the base, and it, it just turned black. It just started growing up the trunk. They're about, I don't know, four and a half, five, not fruited yet, but they're mm-hmm. about four foot tall. The one is super green, and the, the, the one next to it got this black, trunk mm-hmm. and it just grew up the the whole trunk and it's dead it's obviously something has happened to the roots you know either getting uh most commonly getting a little too dry this has been a hard hard summer to get things going but um if it's got any life at all in it i'd use little garret juice for a little super thrive um and even though two plants look the same Depending on how much of a root system they have, one plant may dry out twice as fast as the other one. So you can't always, you know, water them and feed them on the same schedule. Sometimes one will do well, and the one right next to it needed to be watered twice as often. At this point, like I say, I'd water it in with some Super Thrive, some Garrett juice, and give it a little time, see if it comes back out. Right. Okay. It's not a disease. uh, Yeah, it's strictly something physical. They just don't get any diseases, so don't think that's what the issue is there. We're going to talk to Sylvia first. Be Sylvia, E.T., Kathy, and Joyce in that order. So let's just do that. Good morning, Sylvia. Good morning, Bob. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing this week? I think I'm going to make it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm certainly glad to hear that. Uh, Bob, would you explain to me what a root flare looks like? I've got Certainly. two trees, mm-hmm. a peach tree and a plum tree. And the peach tree this year did not give me any fruit because uh, I think we had that little freeze and it killed all the bugs Right. that spring. And then, uh, but my stupid plum tree... I, now I know what the plums would look like if I ever got any because it had, it set three plums, mm-hmm. three, Bob, and and the plum was purple. It's either a Methley or a Santa Rosa. Okay. And, uh, it, you know, I'm sure the squirrels got to it. The only plum on that tree. And I think it's probably to do with a root flare. Okay. Well... When you go down, when you look at the base of a tree, um, if the root flare is buried, it would look just like a fence post or a telephone pole sticking up out of the ground. If the trunk begins to just sort of move out to the side, it's where your bigger roots begin coming out. Now, sometimes even if the root flare is buried, you'll have little fibrous roots in that soil. But it actually looks like the bottom of the trunk is swelling outward. And it is, that is creating, I've always said we should call it a trunk flare, not a root flare, because it is just the broadening of the trunk. And, you know, it ought to be the, the root flare should probably be twice as, well, on a mature tree, um, you know, a third to half again as wide as the trunk. You will see a definite swelling from the side of the trunk. 
But if it just looks like a post or a flagpole or a you know fence post yeah. sticking up yeah. out of the ground, the root flare is somewhere further down underneath, and you just yeah. keep pulling away to the soil and any little fibrous roots until you get down to where you see those major roots coming out from the side of the trunk, and you leave that exposed. You want to have air circulating around that area, and it makes a huge difference in the you know, in the way the plants grow. Sometimes that root flare is buried by an inch. Uh, my friends that do the root flare, you know, exposure using the air spade, there's a pecan tree over in uh, northeast San Antonio. They had to go down six and a half feet to find the root oh, wow. flare. But uh, in your fruit trees, it's probably anywhere from two to six inches underground. And you just kind of dig the soil away. You don't fill anything back in. Normally, you can just kind of leave it as like an open basin. Uh, in the case of some trees, if it's really deep, they'll actually build like a little silo around it because it does. You don't have to have the soil way back. You just need to have air circulation around well, that broadening of the trunk. Why do I dig it away from the trunk with? I'm afraid to hurt the trunk. Well, you you know there are different ways depending on the soil. Sometimes you can just use a nozzle on your hose to just kind of wash the soil away. Sometimes it's a matter of using, uh, uh, before, you know, they started using air spades and things, uh, the same thing that we use uh, to haul bales of hay around that are called hay hooks. They're just kind of a, like a metal meat hook. Uh, they would use those to just, you know, kind of gently tease the soil away and pull it back away from the trunk. Uh, sometimes a little tined digger like you use in the vegetable garden will work. Sometimes just using a shovel very carefully will work. But the the best way to start is just with the nozzle on the end of the hose and see how much soil you can just wash away from the trunk. And if it's okay. not buried too deeply, that's a real good starting point. Now, and the, and the grass, obviously, I would have to take all the grass. Yeah, you just kind of pull the grass back away. The grass doesn't grow up to the tree, uh-huh. but, it, you know, it's a good 12 inches out, and I don't think that's enough. Well, probably be better if it was a little further out, but I would begin by trying to dig down and find that root flare, and then when you do find that, when you do expose that, then if you want to take out a little more grass, that's okay. But at this point, the grass is not the problem. It's the soil, the wet soil piled up against the trunk itself that uh, impacts the tree negatively in several different ways. Okay, so the, the the water hose nozzle with hard sprays, the first way to start it, that's, right? That's the easiest thing to do, and give that a try, and then um, if you need to go after it with something, uh, you know, like a little, oh, golly, it's uh, just kind of like a, a metal hook, like a, like a though, yeah. uh, you okay. know what I'm talking about. Sure, sure, sure. All right, very fine. I really appreciate you, Bob. Thank it's you so much. Always a pleasure, Sylvia. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. All right, let's see here. Next up, it would be uh, E.T. Good morning, E.T. Good morning, Bob. How are you today? I'm good. How about you, sir? Oh, I'm still kicking. Yeah, I got a pot or a seed ID, okay? Uh, it says on a bag, I got a bag here that says M-A-R-I-G-N-A or M-O-R-I-G-N-A. Could be a, a bean oil tree or a drumstick. It's supposed to be a medicinal type of tree. Um, M-A-R-I-D-A. I'm... M-A-R-I-G-G-N-A. 
or O M O R I G N A. So that's not a tree that I am familiar with. What do the What does the seed look like? Oh, they're about uh, the size of uh, jelly beans. They're brown. They got like a a white waxy thing in the middle, or a, a flowery thing in the middle, like on two sides. So okay, does it? Uh, does the white make kind of a band around the seed? Yes, sir. Okay. Yes, sir. Yes, the round <laughs> seed. It's a, a kind of roundish color yeah. seed with a yeah, round with and flat. Like that 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 uh, the plant that that makes is called the hyacinth bean. H y c i n t h. It's uh, it's something you plant in warm weather. It's not something you would plant this time of year. It makes yeah. a beautiful vine. Has uh, rich purple flowers. It'll grow, I don't know, if you have a fence or a trellis to plant it on. I've seen yeah. it grow uh, 8 or 10 feet tall. But it's just a beautiful vine, makes a, a lot of seeds. Um, they look kind of like a watermelon seed, but with a white band around the edge of it. But, uh, yeah, that's called hyacinth bean. If yeah. you want to look it up technically, the technical name is dolichos, D-O-L-I-C-H-O-S. And uh, it, it'll make a it'll make a beautiful vine for you. It's a... Uh, very attractive, very good vine, but uh, you won't plant it till April or May after we're past the danger well, of freezing well, weather. I've got some growing right now, and they're, they're they don't look like no vine to me. They kind of grow up straight, and they got a little over oval shaped leaves, and they'll come out in clusters and all. So okay, well, they should have make a sort of lavender purple flower, and then they'll have sort of a bean like seed pod. And you'll want to collect some seeds for next spring because they're going to grow. They're going to be pretty until it freezes this winter, but then they pretty much die completely. But come back from seed next spring. Okay. And I got one other question. Uh, yes, Bougainvillea. sir. I got a morning glory, morning glory growing up you know, around the Morda Bougainvillea. Will that uh, strangle the Bougainvillea? It doesn't strangle it per se, but if it gets a lot of real thick foliage. Uh, it'll be, you know, getting the sunlight that the bougainvillea really wants. So I would, of course, uh, uh, Morning Glory is going to freeze out when we have some real cold weather. But it's not that it that it strangles. It doesn't squeeze or constrict the bougainvillea. But that Morning Glory can make such so many leaves and things that it just keeps the sunlight from getting to the bougainvillea, which is harmful. Right. Yeah, because it looks kind of cool in the combination of the two. So. <laughs> I so. would leave it alone unless it's so thick that it's shading your bougainvillea out. Okay, thank you very much, Bob. You're welcome, E.T. Thank you, sir. All right, let's see. Taking the calls in order, Kathy is next, and then Joy, Joyce, and then Glenn. Good morning, Kathy. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, it's a beautiful day, and I'm glad to talk to you. <laughs> well, glad you got through. Thank you. I have uh, just two short questions. One, I have a mountain laurel, and it's doing great, doing wonderful. It's covered in the seed pods. And my question is, should I cut those off? They're still a little green. They're mm-hmm. brown, or they're still a little green. Or should I wait till they're real dark brown? If you want to cut them off, you can cut them off at any point. The plant at this point is not going to pay any attention to whether they're on or off. If you leave them on, they will, sometime between now and spring, some of them will come open and you'll have those red seeds get spread around and potentially have some more mountain laurel sprout up. But the tree doesn't care whether you leave them on or take it off. If you think they're attractive, leave them on. If you don't think they're attractive, uh, get in there and just uh, trim them off. 
Well, uh, I had a problem with getting those webworms, but mm-hmm. ever since I quit cutting off the seeds, I haven't had the webworms anymore. <laughs> Well, I'm not sure how that would have interacted. The <laughs> webworms, the webworms tend to get on Mount Laurels are a little stressed. And uh, most of the time, stress in Mount Laurels comes from being watered too much. And Mother Nature definitely has not been overwatering our Mount Laurels this year. So and that, neither have I. Yeah. <laughs> and that's probably why you don't have the, the caterpillars this year. But, uh. Um, again, it's, it's strictly up to you take them on or take them off, leave them on. The tree doesn't really care. Okay. Uh, but as far as to plant them or to give them away to somebody to plant, mm-hmm. uh, which I have done before, uh, they should be the darker brown before they open them up and plant yeah. them. Yeah. You would want to let the, let the pods get pretty much brown, but, uh, Give them the pods. Don't go to all the work of getting the seed out for them. They should have to put forward oh, a little work. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I would take the, uh, I would let them dry a bit on the tree and then take them off. The other thing you can do if you're not sure if they're ready, put your ear down there and shake the pot. If you hear the seeds rattling around in there, they are fully mature, regardless of whether they're green or brown. If you don't hear anything moving back and forth, they probably need to stay on the tree a little longer. Okay. One short question. Uh, there, when I was growing up, we used to eat uh, lima beans that mm-hmm. Mother always called Christmas tree limas, and they're huge. I mean, they're so big, and they're like maroon and tan striped. Uh-huh. I don't know if you've ever seen these or not. The last time I found them was at a feed store, and they said they were uh, seed plants. I mean, seed to plant the seeds. Right. But I cook some of them, and they taste just like the dried ones that we used to buy, be able to buy in the store all sure. the time. Well, I I would tend to grow some. The things that are, you know, meant to be planted sometimes, and I don't approve of it, but sometimes they do spray them with different things. And so I would be reluctant to cook and eat a lot of those. But lima beans grow very easily during the warm season. Uh, I'm not familiar with that variety. If you were looking for the seed, um, obviously, if you find it at a feed store, that seed's perfectly good to plant and grow. If you have trouble finding it again, there's a company you can contact called Baker, B-A-K-E-R, Baker Creek. And they carry a lot of heirloom seeds and... uh, they're just wonderful people to do business with. But if anybody around would have that seed available um, to, to purchase, and they're very, very reasonable on their prices, uh, I would call Baker Creek Seeds. Those, that's the first place I'd start looking for more of it. Well, they're huge. They're like an inch big around. Huh. And it's and called so Christmas, Christmas tree. Yeah. That's what Mama said they were called. Uh, it, when you cook them, I mean, you cook a half-pound bag, and you've got a big pot. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, that sounds so that good. Some ham and bacon or whatever. And maybe know. a little jalapeno chopped up in there. Oh, You're making me. Jalapeno and some onions and, oh, make you slap your grandma like that. <laughs> making me hungry just thinking about it, Kathy. Look around. Let me know. Uh, next time I get a big, uh, catalog from Baker Creek, I'll take a look and see if they've got them. Sounds like a fun plant to grow. And, uh, again, oh, your spring God. garden, they should be very successful. 
Okay, thank you so much. It's my pleasure. Thanks for the call. Always learn something fun. Uh, Christmas tree lima beans. That sounds uh, that sounds like something fun to grow. And good morning, Joyce. Hi, Bob. Hi there. Uh, that discussion about those big old lima beans sounded so good. We used to call them butter beans. Well, and now you can hardly buy them in the grocery store. They're out of fashion. Oh, I, I know. I know. I and gosh, I ate a lot of butter beans growing up. Mine were always a little smaller though, the ones my grandmother fixed. But uh, this sounds like just an enormous bean. But golly, it just uh, almost makes you salivate thinking about them. Oh, it does indeed. My question is about when you're talking about the herbs. When I was at Shades of Green, I bought two lovely four-inch pots, one peppermint and one lemon balm. Mm-hmm. And my question is, they're such big, tall, lovely plants. I wanted to use some of that, but they didn't have an organic tag on them. Would you suggest they be sheared once before you use the product? No, I think you'd be safe to use them. Uh, most uh, everything we get comes from a strictly organic a grower it's a nature's herb farm yes that's what it's from and yeah. it didn't have it on the tag but i wondered if they probably weren't <laughs> oh, they're they're, ch- they're too cheap to put a tag in every pot they just put yeah, one tag in the whole flat um some of the other people that we use gabriel valley farms is the other big organic grower yeah. and they have those yellow tags with the usda logo on them but uh, if it's from nature's herbs uh, they are yeah, organic yeah. and uh, i wouldn't hesitate a bit to use them Remember, of course, that uh, the true mints uh, are, you know, vining, even though they may be fairly tall. That lemon balm is much more of an upright grower, and it's a little more cold sensitive than the mint is. So you may want to protect it if it if it gets, when it gets, whatever, real cold. But the mints are just totally cold hardy, and sometimes I think the more you trim them to use them, the faster they grow. Yeah, I think you said that, and these are spreading from the bottom. You mentioned, though, one time about peppermint. You called it black stem. This doesn't say anything about that. It just says peppermint. Is, is it the same thing? They're two different kinds, but both of them, the taste is very similar. The black stem is a little bit more of a low-spreading plant, whereas your regular peppermint is slightly more upright. But um, the the one is just practically a ground cover. Uh, and it rarely gets over an inch or two tall. Regular peppermint might get four or five inches tall, but both of them are wonderful things to grow. Oh, yeah, I'm sure they are. Well, I'm going to look, keep looking then when I come for that black stem because I would like that a little bit. Oh, it's, yeah, it's one of my favorites. And sometimes it's labeled that way. Sometimes you just look at the plant and you notice how much darker the stems are and how much flatter they tend to grow. That's... Uh, that is my favorite of the peppermints, but I have yet to meet a peppermint I didn't like. Yeah, that sounds fine. Okay, next question was uh, two weeks ago I called you about what appeared to be an upright-growing bougainvillea. Right. And later in that show, you had a, a grower call you mm-hmm. and mention one called Pixie Pink. Has, Correct. Does that ring any bells with you? Oh, it rings, yeah. I remember, and I have the name of the grower. He's uh, a little far away and doesn't normally come to San Antonio, but I have talked to a couple of other of our bougainvillea growers about pixie pink and hopefully they'll grow some of them for us next year oh that's wonderful i thought that was very nice of him to call that's just plant people as you well know for the most part are just really super people there is the occasional exception but most everybody i know in this industry is just a delightful person to do business with and uh, uh that certainly applies to him as well well, thank you. He was so nice. that I appreciate that. One last thing. You may or may not on your property 
have this little cactus, and it came to mind the other day. I know it grows native in Mason and Llano County, mm-hmm. not very much, but it's a flat cactus, a round, flat cactus, mm-hmm. and it has little red, what I call berries, that grow in them. Are you familiar with that at all? We used to, we didn't find them often, but when we did, we'd pick out those little berries, and they you could just <laughs> eat them directly out of the cactus. I don't have that on my property, but I have certainly seen it. Uh, the summers I spent in wildlife management area in West Texas, we had that one, and then we had a similar one, but it made a big fruit that was uh, kind of strawberry-colored, and when the fruit ripens, all the spines would fall off the fruit, and uh, I don't know anybody in our group from the museum and the university that ever shared. We'd see those things, would brush the spine off, and would eat them, and then would tell everybody how good they were. So, yeah, some of those fruits on uh, the opuntias and on the mammillaries as well are quite, quite tasty, which, of course, is evolutionarily beneficial to them because it makes the field mice and the other things that would in nature spread their seed around, it makes it very attractive, and uh, that's that's how Mother Nature dispenses or disperses the seeds. So <laughs> it's, it's one of those things where... Uh, um, I would I would probably be just dishonest enough that I would tell my friends, no, don't don't eat those. But the only reason <laughs> would be so I could go back and get them myself a little later. <laughs> Are either of those in the trade at all that they could be that you can look for somebody that might be able might be able to purchase from? I am not aware of it. If they are, I um, if you I was look, that was the if if you know if you are looking that particular genus is probably what they call mammillaria. That's uh-huh. the genus on it and several different species. And um, it's something you might find from somebody that specializes in cacti, but I wouldn't know which ones are the ones that are the most edible, most tasty ones. But that's something that would be fun to experiment with. But oh, I'm, okay. I'm almost certain that the genus is mammillaria, but I'm not sure of the species. Well, thank you, Bob, very much for your help. And uh Bless all your little babies. Bye. Well, and they thank you for all the wonderful things you do for them, Joyce. So you, you have a wonderful weekend. I'll look forward to your next visit. Thank you. Goodbye. Goodbye. All right, let's get right back to gardening here. And uh, Glenn is up next. Good morning, Glenn. Good morning, sir. Morning. Uh, simple question. Uh, I had nothing but weeds and uh, four-leaf uh, clover in my backyard. So I mowed it down you know, to very basically dust, and I'm wondering what can I do, uh, what kind of seed or uh, anything to kind of get some grass growing again. When we originally bought this house, I had done it all in Bermuda, mm-hmm. and that just, after three or four years, that just died away. It may have gotten too shady or something. If you're looking for just a good green cover for the winter months, um, there are some rye seed blends out there. I don't recommend what they call the Oregon rye. It's, uh, it's very tall. It's hard to cut. But there are some dwarf ryes out there. There are some annual and some perennial. Um, I like this blend they call Pantera. And that's something that you can, uh, any of these more compact ryes, you can put the seed out, water you know, every day for three or four days, and you can literally have a nice green yard uh, probably in a week or two's time. You will have to continue to water unless we get good rains, but uh, the annual ryegrasses are, 
Uh, there's some really good new varieties out there, and uh, certainly with uh, the really intense heat, seems like it's probably behind us now. So I'm recommending you can put them out anytime. What about getting it prepared for regular grass or some kind of grass seed uh, for next year? Well, about the only grass you can plant from seed is Bermuda, and we can't seed Bermuda until the soil is quite warm, which frequently is April or May. So not really going to do a lot of intense preparation until next spring, at which time we would talk about dry molasses. You could always put out some compost. If you like, compost is a good thing to put out at any point. But uh, we're still, you know, we're probably six months away from really being able to to get ready for more seeding. So uh, there's not just a whole lot that you would want to do this far in advance. Okay. I'll give you a call back in a few months then. Well, I will look forward to it. And like I say, if, the, if you want to do one thing that would be good now and or in the spring, a layer of compost over that area is going to do a great deal to get that soil ready. But uh, you don't have to rush to do it. You've got any time in the next two, three months will be a real good time to do that. Appreciate your time, sir. You have a blessed day. You do the same, Glenn. Appreciate the call. All right. Uh, next up is Greg. Good morning, Greg. Good morning, Bob. Awesome. You have a wonderful show and you're a wonderful resource for South Texas. Well, appreciate um, that. Yes, sir. I got the tail end of the story on uh, Glen Mill. We're hope preventing oak wilt. Uh-huh. And I live over in the Gold Canyon area close to Hollywood Park, so I know we're susceptible and it's all around us. And sure. I'm kind of paranoid about losing the, the uh, oak trees in the backyard. So what uh, do you suggest um, if I have a five-gallon bucket? Uh, how much cornmeal to five gallons of water to we put we put trees. yeah we put about a half a cup of cornmeal in and uh, you know fill it with the water let it soak for twenty four to thirty six hours and then the area to apply the liquid is within fifteen feet of the trunk if you've got a small tree that's four or five inches in diameter five gallons is probably enough uh, say a ten inch tree I'd probably do two or three buckets. One of these big old heritage oaks that may be 30 inches or more in diameter, you know, I probably would do four to six buckets. It's Understand, um, and I'm backing up, I don't know how much of the conversation you heard, but cornmeal itself is not the magic, and you want whole ground corn. I mean, you don't want this uh, baking cornmeal where they've polished away, actually, a lot of the really good part of the corn and then added a few supplements back into it. But just ground up corn, corn chops, whole ground cornmeal, fungicidal cornmeal, uh, whatever name you buy it under. When you moisten it, it begins growing a beneficial fungus called trichoderma. Trichoderma is amazing stuff that will wipe every, out everything from athlete's foot to toenail fungus to brown patch in the yard to black spot mildew on your roses. And it works against, uh, oak wilt is caused by a fungus, Ceratocystis phagaraceum or something like that. But the trichoderma attacks and destroys the fungus that causes oak wilt. So this is, we use the cornmeal to generate the, uh, the trichoderma fungus. And then the, fu- the trichoderma fungus is what gives us protection from the oak wilt. And what will cure oak wilt if a tree is not too far gone. So it's something, if I was in an area with lots of oak wilt around me, I'd repeat this about every six months. And there's a lot of indication out there now that it's pretty much 100% effective in preventing oak wilt. 
Oh, that's wonderful news. Now, where do I get this kind of uh, the right type of cornmeal? Certainly not at the grocery store. No, probably a feed store or a nursery. Um, Nature's Creation packages it in small jugs and in, uh, you know, bigger bags. But just about any good feed store. And if you can't find really well-ground cornmeal, what they sell is corn chops, which is, uh, you know, just uh, something they sell for chicken feed and things like that. But just any, I mean, you could even use just the, the entire kernels of corn. But the more ground it is, the more surface area is exposed, the more trichoderma you're going to generate that way. So basically a feed store or a nursery. Excellent. Okay, another question. We bought a little place down at Corpus and. It's pretty much pure sand with uh, a weed block and then gravel, no grass. And we've got a pretty great lizard population, and I'm hopeful that that'll help with the big water roaches. I'm not sure. These <laughs> lizards are pretty small. <laughs> I want to try and keep it organic because we, you know, the canal is pretty close. Sure. And I don't want to use Roundup, but it seems like I go to water something, any little bit of rain, and boom, here comes a, no, a new crop of everything from sandburrs and things i don't even know what it is and i think you had mentioned using vinegar uh, to help kill weeds and the 20 percent is pretty expensive right so i guess what do you suggest to keep it organic and is there some sort of pre-emergent that you can suggest well here's the problem with pre-emergence um in that pre-emergence do not kill seeds but pre-emergent kills, or what the pre-emergent does is when a seed starts to sprout, it keeps the root from forming a, or keeps a weed from forming a root system, and then if the weather's dry, the weed shrivels and dies before it gets started. The problem with something like grass burrs is they can germinate any time from about March through, well, down to the coast, it'd be even later, probably February through October, and pre-emergence, um, they break down themselves over a period of time. And so you're looking at, if you're trying to deal with them with pre-emergence, you're looking at having to put things out, you know, four, five, six times a year, which for okay. me gets kind of economically non-viable. Um, yeah. The, as far as the spray, if your weeds are relatively tender, like clovers and grass burrs and things like that, if you go to the store and buy pickling vinegar, which is going to be like a 9% vinegar, your standard vinegar is going to be 4%, 5% maybe. Pickling vinegar is usually around 9%. And then, of course, the stronger stuff you buy is uh, 20%. And it is, you know, a little bit more pricey. But for unless you're dealing with really tough weeds, unless you're dealing with Bermuda grass or something like that, your pickling vinegar is going to give you pretty good results. And it's the same mix, two ounces of orange oil, gallon of vinegar, and just a little bit of uh, dish soap in with it. Um, the thing that I find, you know, and I live in the hill country, and believe me, I can tell you about world-class grass burrs, but if you are able to find and put out any good compost product, um, I'm not sure who to tell you. Uh, you might call Gill's Nursery down there. Uh, James and Sally Gill, Jay, uh, Sally runs most of the retail, James uh, runs the landscape division. They probably have a good compost, and um, the compost contains a lot of different things that serve as natural pre-emergence. In my own yard, I've got an area that's probably, well, the area we use, probably 30 by 50 we use for a croquet court, 
And a few years ago, the grass burrs were so thick in there that the dogs wouldn't even go near the area. I put uh, put down some organic fertilizer. I put about half an inch of compost over the area. The next spring, I think I pulled a total of about four grass burrs in that entire area. Wow. So compost yeah. compost services a real good natural pre-emergent, plus it builds the soil. Um, and, and it's, for me, and I haven't had much regrowth of grass burrs in that area in the years since then, uh, that's how I'm going to tell you probably the most effective way to tackle the issue of uh, cool weather weeds and then grass burrs. I think uh, that half inch or so of good compost over the surface of the ground is going to do more than just about anything else you could do for that area. And last question, birds of paradise, is that something that needs to be watered on a regular basis? I've got one that is putting out a lot of beautiful blooms, and the others just aren't putting out anything. Okay, uh, and what we're not. what you're calling bird of paradise, uh, we're talking the one with the orange and yellow flowers and the little very kind of very thin leaves? Yes. Okay, and that's yeah. It, it, uh, that's what we call Mexican bird of paradise. You contrast that, you've got another tropical bird of paradise called strelitzia that you can grow in corpus we can't grow it in san antonio but what you're talking about is a mexican bird of paradise if you want it to grow well and bloom well yes you need to fertilize it you need to water it it will survive with almost no care from you but there's a difference in just surviving and really thriving if you're looking to get as many flowers as possible i'd be giving it a thorough watering probably every 10 days i'd be feeding it, uh, if you're using liquid fertilizer every couple of weeks, you're using a dry fertilizer every two or three months. And we're getting toward the end of the flowering season. I know mine's just covered with seed pods now and not many more flowers. Again, corpus, you may have time to get a few more flowers out of it, uh, but water and nutrients will very definitely extend your blooming season. Thank you for all the advice. Thank you, sir. Always a pleasure. And if you go see Gills, tell uh, James and or Sally I said hello. I will, sir. Thank you. My pleasure, Greg. Thank you, sir. Bye. All right, let's finish up gardening. Get ready for the pet show. Dr. Kirby's in there in the producer's room, so as always, look forward to visiting with him. But right now, look forward to visiting with Roy. What's going on, Roy? How you doing, Bob? I'm good, sir. How about yourself? Oh, I'm fine. I'm standing out in my garden at the green spot around. <laughs> a good gardener and outstanding in his field, so to speak. Hey, I can tell you what that seed is that guy was planting. Okay. Like a tree. Uh huh. Because I've got I've got three of them growing right now. They're called moringa trees. Oh, moringas. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's a big, grown real widely in Florida. Uh, yeah. Not usually cold hardy here. So, uh, um, yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. I don't know sense. what I'm gonna do with them when it freezes. <laughs> They're about twelve feet tall now. I got them in thirty gallon pots. Well, I'll tell you what sometimes you can do when something like that gets too tall to cover, tump it over on its side. And yeah, That's what I was thinking. Yeah, tump it over on the side. We did that back, oh golly, years ago when we first opened our nursery. We, we had learned the hard way that even oak trees can freeze and die when it gets down in the single digits. And a lot yeah. of people haven't been around long enough to know that it can do that in San Antonio, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> I guess you, the way you're laughing, you sound like me. You've been around the long enough to experience that, and uh, that's what we did, and a couple of times we had in previous years really hard freezes. We just laid things over on their side and then yeah. you know, wrapped them with uh, one of the row cover fabrics, and it worked really well. 
just a kind of a pain in the you know what to have to do yeah. but it's uh it's a whole lot easier than trying to get something up over the top of a big tall tree yeah they uh just started blooming this year for the first time because oh, they were good. small last year and they got clustered the blooms that come out of the side it looks like reminds me of a bohemia interesting but, uh, yeah uh one more thing will deer eat a bay tree bay leaf tree no deer I've got a bay leaf in a field where we used to have a greenhouse, and uh, I was harvesting some of it for a friend that has a wonderful organic restaurant up in Bernie called Valerius. But uh, I I have not watered that tree probably in 10 years, and yeah. it's probably 20 feet high and 6 feet wide, and I have never seen one iota of deer damage on that tree, and believe me, there are plenty of deer around. But it's uh, especially if you're growing it a little on the dry side, especially if you're growing it organically. The aromatic compounds in uh, bay laurel are strong enough that the deer will leave it strictly alone. Now, if you go out and buy a tree from a nursery, it probably in its growing area it was given a bunch of synthetic nitrogen doesn't have nearly as much aromatic quality to it. And a tree like that, they might nibble on it for a little while, but once it has, you know, the kind of the organic program has kicked in, yeah. I can't think of a more deer-resistant plant than a bay laurel. And it's, it's it, again, we're just limited a little bit in cold hardiness. But, uh, uh, again, I think the people that told us that it's not totally cold hardy must be growing it with the synthetic fertilizers. Cause, Probably, yeah. Yeah, mine has never shown a bit of cold damage outside of Bernie, and I know my friend Howard Garrett has one in his landscape up in Dallas that has never been damaged by uh, their cold weather, and they get 10 degrees colder than we do. So I I just don't have any negatives about bay laurel. It's just a wonderful tree. All right, good. I've got it in a five-gallon pot. Mm-hmm. Been there about four years. It's six feet tall, and I got it when it was about six inches tall from two peony. <laughs> you know joe <laughs> passed away recently part. don't you yeah i'm sorry to hear that yeah but so. uh yeah the the one thing i'll tell you about bay laurel i do recommend keeping it as a big shrub rather than a tree we had one that was more tree light that was snapped a few years ago in an ice storm so uh, i like letting it grow up with multiple trunks more like a big shrub and uh but i you know yours is just off to a good start it's going to get a lot larger and I figure that, you know, the, the one that I have at HEB prices has probably got about $10,000 worth of bay leaves <laughs> yeah, no kidding. there. So certainly worth have worth having right. in the landscape, especially if you like to do a Louisiana-style cooking. Right. Well, all right, Bob, that's all i got for you today. I really appreciate your well, show. Well, I appreciate the uh, the heads up on, the, on that seed being the Moringa. Roy, I really appreciate right. it. We'll talk again.